Welcome to Spotlight on Pulmonary Fibrosis, a podcast provided by Böhringer Ingelheim. This podcast series aims to help people navigate their way through the complex pulmonary fibrosis journey. Leading doctors and patient organization representatives from across Europe share their insights on the topics of diagnosis, treatment, and management of pulmonary fibrosis. Welcome to this episode of Spotlight on Pulmonary Fibrosis in Connective Tissue Disease. In this episode, we are going to be talking about recognizing the signs and early diagnosis of scleroderma. And here with us today are Michaela Linkova, a scleroderma patient and patient advocate. Hello, Michaela. Hello. Thank you for your invitation. And thank you for joining us. Dr. Persina, an expert radiologist. Hello, it's nice to be here today. Welcome, welcome. And Dr. Tsiriak, an expert rheumatologist, is with us today as well. Hello, first of all, thank you for the kind invitation. And thank you for joining us too. We're going to start with you, Michaela, as a patient and patient representative. Could you please just tell us your story, why you chose to become a patient advocate and why the topic is so important to you? Uh, hi, everybody. I was diagnosed with systemic scleroderma in January 2015, and I didn't know this illness at all, and I didn't have enough information. So the first thing I did was searching on Google, which is the worst thing the new diagnosed person can do. Unfortunately, many physicians didn't know the illness. I was lucky. I got soon after first signed to a specialized center for systemic scleroderma. So it took me about five months. Even so, I had a complications in November 2015 and ended up in coma with renal failure and other serious complications. They only gave me 30% chance to survive. But because I survived, when I got out of the worst, I decided to help patients with this disease and I established a scleroderma patient group in 2018. That's a moving story. So it was a very, a very personal thing to be able to help other people with the same disease as you have. Dr. Chiriak, as a rheumatologist, could you please tell us more about your role as a rheumatologist? So how did it all start? Why did you choose to specialize in rheumatology? And what is it like to work closely with patients with rheumatological conditions? I started my specialization in Debrecen in Eastern Hungary, in University of Debrecen. And uh, as you all know, internal medicine consists of a lot of different specialties. And uh, regarding rheumatology, the patients with connective tissue diseases are taken care of by rheumatologists. And the most important uh, point regarding uh, these disorders that several organs, internal organs, and uh, musculoskeletal uh, organs are involved in the disease. So mm -hmm. if you would like to become a specialist, you have to read a lot and you have to evaluate the whole picture of the patient because the clinical symptoms and organ involvements are very different and highly variable. So it's a difficult specialty, but very interesting and I like it very much. Yes. And so did you, from the beginning, always want to be a rheumatologist or did it, did it sort of happen to you from a, as an opportunity in the hospital? I started to work in the Department of Internal Medicine in Debrecen, and at that time, this unit was very interested in 
patients with systemic lupus erythematosus, which is another connective tissue disease. More than 800 patients attended this unit. But at that time, when I was a young fellow, nobody was taking care of scleroderma patients. And I just asked my boss that I'm really interested because it is a complicated disease and very difficult to help to the patients. And I got the permission and all the help. So I started to work on scleroderma and collected a huge patient cohort consisting of 400 patients. In 1995, I moved to Page from Debrecen. I got a professorship and there was no scleroderma center here. Now we are a scleroderma center and we are treating more than 400 patients. Wonderful. So, so the idea really came from you, from something that you felt passionate about. That's great. Yes, that's correct. Dr. Pershina, could you please tell us more about your role as a radiologist, perhaps a bit about your background? I'm a radiologist with specialization in cardioterastic visualization. For the last several years, I've been working with a big network of specialists such as rheumatologists and pulmonologists who are focused on taking care of patients with interstitial lung disease, including connective tissue disease. From my first years of medical school, I was very interested in underlying processes and morphology in many diseases, because it can be the key in the patient treatment, and radiology allows to look inside and answer some of these questions. Systemic diseases and especially pulmonary involvement in them are difficult to diagnose. The only way to help these patients is to collaborate with experts in the field of rheumatology, pulmonology, and radiology. This collaboration inspires me to improve the knowledge of how to help these patients. Moreover, many of connective tissue disease can be controlled by treatment, and we can observe from patients how the treatment works and the disease slow down or reverse it. And this is amazing. What about the patients with connective tissue disease? This is the special patients, and particularly with systemic sclerosis. Many of patients in this group are young and really involved in treatment and decision-making. Pretty often, they read a lot about the disease from different sources and take part in patients' forums online. Thus, it's very important to be updated and have good communication skills. From other side, patients with connective tissue disease could have multisystemic involvement, and often they're afraid of this disease, especially during the first months of treatment. And that is the patient group that you concentrate mostly on, the patients with rheumatological conditions. How do they differ so much from other patient groups that you encounter? As I said, most of them are young and very ill patients. So they're involved in the process of diagnostic and decision-making, so they're very interested in it. And in today's episode, we're speaking about scleroderma, also known as systemic sclerosis, and the journey towards diagnosis. Back to you now, Dr. Tsiriak. What is scleroderma? Maybe you can describe it to us as lay people. What causes it? What are the common early signs? Uh, symptoms that people would notice, for instance? The name scleroderma is in ancient Greek, and it means hard skin. There is a skin hardening and sickening in a patient with scleroderma, and the digits of the hands are always involved, and this skin hardening may appear 
in the upper part of the extremities as well, and in the central region on the chest and abdominal region. It can be quite restricted and it can be quite extensive. The simple physical investigation may help to come up with the idea that the patient has scleroderma. So the early diagnosis is not that difficult. Regarding what are the causes of scleroderma, it is a very difficult question because we don't really know. We know a lot. There is some genetic susceptibility, but it is not an inherited disease. There are a series of different genes which may contribute to this susceptibility. We also identified some environmental factors like exposure to silica, coal miners, exposure to organic solvents, maybe some infections. That's interesting. So are there, are there different types of scleroderma? Yeah. Regarding the provoking agents, they can provoke all different types of scleroderma. But basically, when we are talking about scleroderma, the systemic form of scleroderma, where the whole body may be involved, in this form we have two subtypes. The first one is called limited cutaneous systemic sclerosis. That means that the skin hardening present mainly in the extremities. And the other type is diffuse cutaneous systemic sclerosis, which means that the central regions of the body are also showing skin hardening and thickening. And the difference is really important because the outcome and prognosis of the diffuse type of systemic sclerosis is worse. And for the doctors and patients, it's crucial that you need to have a risk assessment at the beginning of the disease. You need to define whether you have a very early scleroderma, you have a limited cutaneous systemic sclerosis or diffuse cutaneous systemic sclerosis. And following the risk assessment, you need to have a plan how to follow up your patients. You need to make investigations for the assessment of heart, lung, kidney, joints, gastrointestinal region. You shouldn't wait for the uh, clinical symptoms, for example, regarding the lung, because if you already have lung-related symptoms, maybe the treatment is late. Right. So the key is really to diagnose the subtype of scleroderma in order to be able to treat it as early as possible. Yes, and I didn't mention one very important point. Regarding the very early symptoms in systemic sclerosis, you may have some skin hardening of the digits, or you even don't have a skin hardening, just some puffy fingers. Plus, you have a symptom which is called Raynaud's phenomenon. Raynaud's phenomenon means that the patient is sensitive to the exposure to cold, and following an exposure to cold, the digital arterias are temporarily closing, and that means that there is temporarily no blood supply for the digits, and it is very painful, and you can see color changes, white, blue, and red colors. These two symptoms appear very early, and the patient should be diagnosed in this early phase, and maybe you met the patients with diffuse cutaneous systemic sclerosis, but in the very early phase, the skin involvement is not diffuse yet. But you have other laboratory investigations and other tools to assess the patient very early and to 
have a careful risk assessment, whether this patient has a high risk for developing intertissal lung disease or heart disease or severe joint involvement, and you have to think about early treatment, of course. Right, so there are certain signs that are early, such as swollen extremities, etc., which can make it easier to get to an early diagnosis. We're going to talk to Michaela now. Michaela, can you tell us a little bit more about how your journey with scleroderma started? What were the first signs and symptoms that you experienced? The first symptoms were extreme fatigue, feeling faint, nausea, or losing weight, At the beginning, I ignored these signs because I saw I'm working too much, so maybe it's just because of this. But later on, I started to have repeatedly inflammation of the urinary tract, swelling of the hands, and as Dr. Cizirak mentioned, I had rhinote on my fingers, fluffy hands, and also I started pain in my bones, muscles, and tendons. You have some questions for him specifically about sclerodera symptoms. Would you like to ask Dr. Tsiriak a question? Of course, I have a question. For many patients, their first medical contact after noticing scleroderma symptoms is their local general practitioners. However, it can take some time till they are being referred to the right specialist and accurately diagnosed. What are the biggest hurdles? for an early diagnosis of these conditions and what are your recommendations to the patients who are struggling to get the right help? The reference of patients to the centers is very late. It usually takes two, three years, even in West European countries. If a patient has Reynolds phenomenon, the patient should be referred to a rheumatology specialist and the rheumatology specialist will perform some basic investigations which include immunological tests and nephrod capillaroscopy. We see the nephrod capillaries and they are abnormal in this disease. If the patient also has puffy fingers, as you had, this is a other firm warning sign. So if these two are together, then the reference should be much quicker. A significant part of the patients with scleroderma doesn't have inflammatory symptoms. But if the patient also has some inflammatory symptoms, the probability that the patient already has early systemic sclerosis is very high. So I think that my overall suggestion is to refer the patients with Reynolds phenomenon, arthralgia, puffy fingers, skin hardening, sickening, and general symptoms like fatigue to connective tissue disease center. Usually university departments are covering this specialty, and the center should tell whether this is early scleroderma or We don't know, but we have to follow the patient, so we have to ask to come back a few months later, or it is not a scleroderma at all. Thank you very much. It's quite important that we hear this because uh, we have experienced that some patients were diagnosed after 5-10 years, which is terrible. Why do you think it's so important that the patients are referred to the right specialist for assessment? The basic problem... Of course, I am oversimplifying the question, but there are three different set of problems. 
The first one is the vascular problems, which includes uh, Reynolds phenomenon and digital ulcers, and Reynolds phenomenon should be treated. The second problem is the skin, joint, and other musculoskeletal involvements, which is very awkward for the patient. And the third one, that the patients may have heart, lung, gastrointestinal, and kidney involvement. And regarding especially the heart and lung involvements, at the beginning, the patient usually doesn't feel any heart or lung-related complaint. So, There is a need for a specialist who knows that my patient is a candidate for a later development of interstitial lung disease, for example. I have to make the basic investigations of the lung in the very early phase. That means that I have to make spirometry, I have to ask the radiologist to make a high-resolution computer tomography and give me an answer whether the lung is involved or not. And I also have to ask the cardiologist to make an echocardiography and to evaluate the heart. And it is not symptom-related. Patients without cardiac or heart-related symptoms should be assessed, investigated, and baseline, and also these investigations should be repeated regularly. How often? It depends on the risk assessment. There are patients where we need to do the reassessment very often, and in another patient in every two, three years. So don't wait for the symptoms, especially for the heart and lung-related symptoms, because it is too late for the treatment, for the appropriate treatment. Recognize early and treat early. Okay, so we're going to take it from there, actually. So we've reached the point of a referral to a rheumatologist. For patients, of course, it's a great sense of relief. However, the unfamiliar tests and procedures can leave the patients and their families with lots of questions. We're going to learn now more about these topics from our specialists that are here with us today. Michaela, you have some more questions for Dr. Tsiriak. Yeah, I do. Dr. Tsuriak, can you please tell us what will happen during the first appointment with rheumatologists? If a patient first comes, and let's talk about a patient who doesn't have 10 years long symptoms. The patient comes with early signs of disease. First, we make a physical investigation and we have to assess the skin involvement. That means that we are gently pinching the skin and we can assess whether there is a skin hardening or not. And we evaluate that and we give a skin score to the patient. The score depends on the extent of the skin involvement. And if the skin score is high, the patient has diffuse scleroderma with a relatively unfavorable prognosis. If the skin score is low, then the patient probably has a limited scleroderma. So we evaluate the skin for digital ulcers. So we are looking for digiting pitting scars. Then we also assess the joint movements, joint pain. We make a nafold capillaroscopy. As I have mentioned, it's a microscopic investigation of the nafold, and there is a diagnosis called scleroderma capillary pattern, which consists of capillary dropouts and giant capillaries. We also make usually an X-ray from the hands and laboratory investigation. We assess the presence of inflammatory signs erythrocyte sedimentation rate, and we assess some special scleroderma-specific antibodies, 
like anti-topoisomeries, anti-centromere antibodies, because they help to come up with the diagnosis and they help to have a, an appropriate risk assessment. And taking all this together, we also ask the patient about internal organ symptoms, especially gastrointestinal related symptoms, bloating, abdominal pain, diarrhea, and weight loss. We also ask patients with heart or lung related symptoms, which is breathlessness, decreased physical ability. We carefully measure the blood pressure because if it is high, then kidney involvement can be present. I mentioned a lot different investigations, but in the everyday routine, it is not too much for the patient. And without these mandatory basic investigations, we cannot go further. Point two, if we come up with the diagnosis of systemic sclerosis based on these investigations that I have mentioned, then it is mandatory to make a high-resolution computed tomography of the lungs. It is mandatory to make a special spirometry, lung function test, and it is also mandatory to make an echocardiography by an experienced cardiologist with both the left and right side of the heart, and of course we also make an ECG. Based on these investigations, usually we are able to tell to the patient whether we have internal organ involvement or not, and how should we come up with the treatment, and what kind of follow-up is necessary. Mm-hmm. Maybe just one additional question. Is it always easy to diagnose systemic scleroderma from the point of antibodies? Are they always visible uh, for systemic scleroderma? Very good question. And my overall answer is that in the overwhelming majority of the patients, it is visible. Uh, the overwhelming majority of the patient has scleroderma-specific antibody. It is 90 5-6%, because we are in Central Europe. Interestingly enough, regarding the Hungarian patients, the proportion of patients who does not have scleroderma-specific autoantibody is relatively high. As I mentioned, we are following here in our center more or less 400 patients, and we have 30 patients who are specific autoantibody negatives. So it may happen, but if you put together the whole picture... Clinically, the diagnosis is very easy. The most important requirement that the patient should appear as early as possible to the rheumatology center. And Michaela, as a patient, so from your own experience, is there something that was missing there or something that you would like to add? I think it is important that the scleroderma patient continue to go on regular checkups and monitor the conditions. What exactly you are looking for during the regular checkups? It is very difficult to answer because first you have to have a risk assessment. Let's tell you an example. If the patient has an early scleroderma but the skin involvement is quite extensive, the chest is also involved, you see skin hardening, and the patient has anti-topoisomerase autoantibodies and some laboratory signs of inflammation. This patient has an early diffuse cutaneous systemic sclerosis, and the probability to develop early 
lung or heart or kidney involvement is high. So you have to make, as I mentioned, for example, the lung HRCT, lung function test and echocardiography. And even if it is no signs of lung involvement, in this early phase, you have to repeat the spirometry, the lung function tests, every three months. If you take uh, the other side, you have uh, patients with limited cutaneous system sclerosis with a longer disease duration, and you don't see lung involvement based on this investigation, then you have to repeat the lung function tests once a year, and you have to decide how often you repeat the imaging HRCT, it may not be necessary to repeat every year. I cannot give you a clear-cut answer because the disease is highly variable. There are different risk factors, and based on these particular risk factors, the rules are clear how often you should repeat these investigations. What is the most important, and probably it is absolutely true for your particular case, that if you have a patient with early signs of diffuse scleroderma, the lung, kidney, and heart should be checked relatively frequently. I just wanted to ask Michaela if that has been the case for her. Have you been for regular checkups? Has that been true for your case? It was true for lung involvement, definitely. So I was very early sent for the examination of my lung. But the kidney weren't mentioned, Mm -hmm. which I think it might be missed, and it's important as well. Let me tell you that there is one further scleroderma-specific antibody, anti-RNA polymerase 3 antibody. If it is present, the risk for developing kidney involvement is higher, much higher, compared to the other two groups. So based on the autoantibodies and the clinical findings, laboratory findings, you can decide whether your kidney should be carefully checked up or not. Anyway, if somebody develops kidney involvement, the very first sign of kidney involvement is usually an increased blood pressure. We suggest to all scleroderma patients that they should uh, regularly check their blood pressure at home, independently mm-hmm. on the subtype, because if there is an increase in blood pressure, the patient should be immediately referred to the center. Yeah, it's quite important. I think in my case, it was a bit different as from my antibodies. It wasn't really visible or predicted that my kidney could be damaged. So, yeah, definitely the measurement of blood pressure is an important part. Thank you for listening to part A of this episode on early signs and diagnosis of scleroderma. Please also listen to part B, where the participants will continue their important conversation on scleroderma. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Spotlight on Pulmonary Fibrosis podcast. For more podcasts in this series, you can subscribe for free on whatever platform you use. The information on this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment.